Well, good morning. How is everybody this morning? Well, that's kind of how I feel too. A bit uh, con conflicted at the moment because Brian said to sit down. Volcano. I had hoped that the picture would be <laughs> clearer than that, and and uh, you, that you would be better able to see it. But you can you can see the big blobs down the bottom there, where huge boulders have rolled down the face of that volcano, and uh, it's it's you know the light there at the top. And the only reason that I showed you that is because, well, it has something to do with God's power, and God's power is tied to His faithfulness. That thing that you were just singing about. The reason that he's faithful and true, the reason that he can be faithful and true, is because he is the Almighty. Uh, there's nothing that's too difficult for him. His, his reach never exceeds his grasp, and uh, that's just a sweet thing to know about God. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at, uh, at the book of Ruth, and, and we're going to see some of God's faithfulness to his eternal promises. And uh, it's going to be in the face of a group of people that really have no idea what's going on. At least two women that have no idea what God is up to, what, what's actually about to happen. There's going to be tension uh, by the time we're done with this this morning and, and ready for next week as we take that on. Before we get there, I just want to uh, uh, say that uh, in, in, as we're talking about God's faithfulness, one of the places where he's been faithful has been here, and there's no question about that. And his faithfulness here, combined with your faithfulness, has, uh, has made it possible for next weekend to be the third anniversary of the church there at uh, the founding of the church there in Toronto, Potter's House of Toronto. Uh, Faith and I will be headed that way next weekend and, uh, and spending some time with the folks there. And one of the things that's going to happen that's going to coincide with the third anniversary is they will be or we will be ordaining deacons up there who can serve in the role of deacon. And, and by God's grace, from that group of men and that group of men and women will come the elders of, of the church at some point in the future as God continues to display his faithfulness through you as you've stood behind that, that church plant. So, having said all of that, this morning we'll be continuing our studies in the story of Ruth. Uh, it's a seven-week study in a series entitled A Story for the Ages. And I can tell you that, uh, this isn't a spoiler alert, but I can tell you that this is part two uh, and, and entitled, The Right Place at the Right Time. And we'll be looking at Ruth chapter 1, verses 14 to 22. Last week, we looked at the first 13 verses of, of chapter 1 of Ruth and saw there at, that the story of Ruth took place during the times of the judges. I hope you recall that. And in particular, during a time when Israel was facing a famine, when a famine was rocking the nation of Israel. A famine that was, in context, the result of God, punishing his people for turning their backs on him because that's what continued to happen during the times of the judges. And in the midst of that trial, that famine, a man named Elimelech made a decision to take his wife and two sons to the land of Moab. The move was not in any way religious. It was simply practical. Israel had no food. They were in the midst of a famine. And Moab had food because there was no famine there. And that's why Elimelech went with his family. Now, Moab was a place where the people did not worship Yahweh, the one true God, but chose instead to pursue and appease a bloodthirsty false god that they called Chemosh. And to be clear, 
Elimelech and Naomi did not move to Moab for the sake of forsaking the one true God or for the sake of pursuing and appeasing Chemosh. And it'll become clear that Naomi's family held on to their worship of the one true God during all the years that they were living in Moab. And we know that because of how the story is going to unfold today and something that Ruth is going to say to Naomi. But during that time in, in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And Mahlon and Kilion, her two sons, also died. They married Moabite women, and, and then they died. And, and, uh, and that all happened during those years, the, the 10 or so years that they were in Moab. We talked about the fact last week that there are many Bible teachers and commentators who are quick to point out that the untimely death of Naomi's husband and her two sons uh, it was, is evidence of God's punishment of their family for the move to Moab. And I said last week that, that I'd be a lot more comfortable thinking that God was angry and punished them by killing those three men if it said in the passage that that's what God was doing. Let's be clear. God was responsible for their deaths because he's the author of life. So I'm not questioning that reality. I'm only questioning whether their deaths came as punishment from God. That's all I'm that's all I'm questioning. I say that because in this chapter, we have the historical fact that, that these three men died, but there's nothing in the text of the first chapter to suggest that those deaths were God's punishment. Of course, Naomi did say that the Lord's hand had turned against her, but I'm more inclined to think that when God turned his hand against Naomi, it was not because they had moved to Moab, Instead, I think there's reason to believe from the text itself, from the chapter itself, that God turned his hand against Naomi because he didn't want her to stay in Moab. He was moving her out of Moab. I say that because, as we've been hinting, God has important plans of eternal significance for Naomi's family, plans that will require her to leave Moab and move back to Israel, plans that cannot come to fruition if she remains in Moab. So God is going to move her back. So in keeping with the eternal plan of God, Naomi must, re must return to Israel. And in keeping with the eternal plan of God, Naomi cannot return to Israel alone. Those two things are vital to what's about to happen. So Naomi made the decision to return to Israel. And if you remember from last week, Naomi invited and even encouraged her daughters-in-law to go with her as she left for Israel. The journey that they were anticipating together would have been a, a steep and rugged journey, moving through the Jordanian desert to the northwest and rounding the northern end, rounding the northern end of the Dead Sea. Let me see if I can... Oh, there it is. Rounding the northern end of the Dead Sea. It was only about 50 miles, but on foot, it would have taken somewhere between 7 and 10 days to cross the desert and those mountainous places there between those two places. And I'm inclined to say that the journey itself might have provided a reason for Orpah and Ruth not to go with Naomi, not to return to Moab. But the two daughters-in-law agreed to go along with her, even though at the end of that arduous journey, difficult journey, they would find themselves in a land that was completely foreign to them. And from the personal experience of our family, I can tell you that a journey of that length and difficulty to a foreign land where you know nothing about anything is an incredibly intimidating prospect. And it seems that that's why Naomi changed her mind. Not about going to, back to Israel, but about taking her daughters-in-law 
with her. She stopped along the way and she insisted that they return, that they go back to Moab, to their own homes and to their mothers because Naomi knew that she wouldn't have any more sons for them to marry. Their lives would be incomplete. In reality, the, the step that Naomi took at that moment for me was incredibly loving and incredibly considerate. She had been through a severe trauma, but she loved her daughters-in-law. And she cherished their loyalty, but she thought of them first and told them to return to Moab where they might find rest in the arms of another husband. She insisted on that, even though it would mean that Naomi herself would be totally alone, not only for that grueling journey, but for the rest of her life when she had returned to Israel. So she told her daughters-in-law, to leave her and to return to Moab. Perhaps you remember that from last week. But these two girls loved Naomi, and they didn't want to leave her alone. So the daughters-in-law protested and told Naomi that they would not return to Moab. And we should point out here that in that moment, in that moment when Naomi was insisting that the two girls go home, it was not just the journey to Israel that was in jeopardy. In truth, the eternal plan of God that stood behind the trip to Moab was in jeopardy as well. Let's be clear here. <laughs> the eternal plan of God is never actually in jeopardy. Let's be honest about that. But let's be equally clear, that when we, when, clear when we say that the eternal plan of God required that one of the daughters-in-law included that one of the daughters-in-law would return with Naomi to Israel. And in fairness, Naomi didn't know what God had planned or what God had in mind because she still hadn't discovered the real reason for the trip to Moab in the first place. So, if you remember from last week, we said that Naomi told the girls to head back to Moab and the girls immediately protested and said that they wanted to stay with Naomi, but Naomi stood her ground and told the girls to go back home. <laughs> True mother-in-law, right? And that's when we said that in response to Naomi's final insistence, the girls decided to come back next week to see how it all worked out. And now it is next week, though technically it's not next week. It's still this week once again, but you know what I mean. I'm not going to let you leave you hanging anymore. With that review in place, it's time to begin to unpack this passage to see if God will actually be thwarted if he'll actually be foiled as he tries to keep his promises and fulfill his eternal plan. And just as by way of a spoiler alert, if you know God, you know he always keeps his promises. You know that he always fulfills his plan. So you probably already know how this is going to turn out. But I think it's important that we unpack the passage anyway if you've got a few minutes to spare. And we all know how we begin to underpack a passage, right? We, we do that by reading the passage aloud together. So if you would, stand with me. And let's read aloud together from Ruth chapter 1, verses 14 to 22. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. 
May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said to them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. As you take your seats, whisper a prayer from your heart that God will talk to you and reveal his truth from his heart to your heart this morning. And before we say anything else about this passage, I want you to notice where Naomi and Ruth arrived at the end of their journey. They arrived in Bethlehem. And here's where I can say that maybe the return to Bethlehem is the hint that we all need to begin to understand how incredibly important this return to Israel really is and to the part that Ruth will play in the overarching plan of God for the ages. But keep that thought as a tool in the back pocket of your mind so that you can use it later. Uh, he's just covering his bald spot, I think. But uh, so that you can use it later, and in the meantime, we'll get to the story from God's Word. The story from God's Word that I want to tell you this morning comes from the book of Joshua. It happens during the time when the wanderings in Israel had, had finally come to, the wanderings in the wilderness uh, had finally come to an end. The people of Israel are now camped beside the Jordan River as the story begins, but they're on the wrong side of the river with the Jordan separating them from the land that God had promised to give them. They spent an entire day moving the six miles that separated their campground from the Jordan River, and as the story begins, they're settling down for the night with everyone, no doubt, wondering what the morning would hold. In actuality, the morning didn't hold very much because the plan was that they would camp there on the far side of the Jordan for three full days. And then after three days, word passed through the camp that tomorrow was the day. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from the third chapter of Joshua. Early the next morning, Joshua sent the officers of the people through the camp so that they could tell the people to, to keep an eye out for the Ark of the Covenant. They were to get ready to move once again to a new campsite, one that would be on the other side of the Jordan. So they got ready and were planning to simply wait until the, they saw the Levitical priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant because that's what they had been told to do. And then once everybody was ready to move, Joshua told the officers to pass the word through the camp that when they saw, when everyone saw the Ark of the Covenant passing the place where they were, they were to pick up all that they owned and follow the Ark. But that's a little bit of an overstatement because they were told to keep at least three-fifths of a mile, three-quarters of a mile between themselves and the Ark. Joshua told them to be ready the first thing because all of this would happen in the morning. That next morning, Joshua made his way to the priests and told them the plan, or at least part of the plan, told them to take up the ark and pass on ahead of the people. And that's what the priests did. 
God then spoke to Joshua and said and told Joshua that this was the day that God himself would recommend and endorse Joshua to all of the people. God intended to do that by showing the people that when Joshua spoke, he was speaking God's words just as truly as when Moses had spoken, he was speaking God's words. And then at God's instruction, Joshua told the priests that they were to carry the ark through the camp and then head straight for the river. And then he said, when you reach the bank of the Jordan, go and stand in the river. Well, the priests were determined to do what Joshua told them to do, even if it didn't make much sense, even if they had no idea what the next part of the plan would be. Joshua then told the people of Israel that they were to have choose one representative from each of the tribes and have them follow the priests at a safe distance. And these men would be the first ones into the river after the priests. We'll learn later in Joshua that those men were supposed to pick up large stones and carry them on their shoulder from the middle of the river and carry them all the way across to the other side where they would pile them up as a monument for future generations so that when children asked, where did these stones come from? The people of Israel were to point to the middle of the river and say they came from there when God did this for us. So Joshua told the priests to keep walking toward the river and then to step into the water where it flowed along the bank. And that's when Joshua let the priests and everybody else in on the rest of the plan. As soon as the priests carrying the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, touched the water, as soon as their feet touched the water, the Jordan River would stop flowing as the water piled up in a heap and began to flow upstream. So the people broke camp. And waited at a safe distance until the priest carrying the ark and the 12-man vanguard had passed by. And then they began to follow. I guess this is where we should mention that at that time of the year, the time of harvest, the Jordan River is at full flood stage every year. But the instant, listen to this, the instant that the feet of the priest touched those swirling waters, the waters upstream stopped flowing and began to back up. The downstream waters continued to flow to the south and the upstream waters backed up to the north and, and they left the riverbed completely dry. Not muddy, completely dry. The priests continued walking and then stopped in the middle of what had been the flooded Jordan River and, and they stood there on dry ground until the whole nation had passed by them crossing on dry ground to the other side of the Jordan. And that is the story from God's Word. Before we move on from this story, I want to ask a simple question. How did God stop the flow of the Jordan River at flood stage so that Israel could walk across on dry ground? And a simple question requires a simple answer, right? He's God, that's how. I mean, that, that'd preach right there, but, but I think you, that is a very simple answer, but I think it misses a significant point of the story in Joshua chapter 3. And that point has to do with these guys, the priests that carried the ark. Because twice in those 17 verses, the scripture makes the point that as soon as the feet of the priest touched the water, the water would stop flowing, the river would stop flowing. It's mentioned twice. God said it would happen, and then it happened. It's mentioned twice. The feet of the priest would touch the water. Now, we know that God is unlimited unless he limits himself, right? We understand that. 
And in this case, he limited himself. Think about it. What would have happened if those two guys in the front, I, those are the guys that I feel most sorry for in this scenario. What would have happened if those two guys in the front there had decided that they just weren't willing to take the risk of leading the way that day? What if they had said, hey, hey, we're the guys who are taking the risk here, and we're the guys who are going to look like idiots if this plan doesn't work. What would have happened? Would God have just stopped the flow of the river anyway? Well, let's think about this. What was God's promise? God had promised that the river would stop flowing when the feet of the priests touched the water. In other words, for this thing to happen, the priests had to be in the right place at the right time. Now, let's be clear here. If the priests had not wanted to obey, if they had been unwilling to take the risk, we can be sure that God would still have stopped the flow of the river anyway because that was his plan but he would have done that by finding other priests who would have obeyed and taken the risk and waded in. So the priest carrying the ark had to be in the right place at the right time because God had said that he would do what he said he would do when the feet of the priests touched the water. Think with me about this. What if those priests had stopped, say, 10 feet from the edge of the water, short of the water, and then told God that, that they weren't liking this arrangement and proposed a different arrangement to him. God, we're just going to wait for you to stop the flow of the river, and then we're going to go across. I mean, that, that would be a decent deal, wouldn't it? I, you see the river stop? That, that's, time to, that's time to go. What if they had stopped 10 feet short? Or think about this. What if several of the families from Israel had decided that the day that God had chosen for the, to cross the Jordan it just didn't work? for them what if they said today doesn't work we'll just cross tomorrow that's what we'll do well to answer those questions let's just say this again the right place at the right time everyone who was going to cross the jordan that day had to be at the right place at the right time so what does that have to do with this passage from the story of ruth that we're unpacking today well i'm glad you asked because the answer to that question is going to come from unpacking the passage this morning. So let's get to that. Let's remember where we are. Naomi has made the decision to go back to Israel. She's urged her daughters-in-law to go with her. Then after beginning the journey, Naomi changed her mind and told her daughters-in-law that their chances would be better if they were not with their mother-in-law. They wept aloud wept aloud. They didn't cry crocodile tears. They wept aloud. They wailed together and hugged on each other. And the daughters-in-law said that they planned to stay with Naomi. But Naomi reminded them again that she wouldn't have any more sons, and this is still from last week, that they could marry, and then again said that they should go back home. She told them that the hand of Yahweh, you remember that? The hand of Yahweh has turned against her, and they would be better off without her. And in response to that, for crying out loud, everybody started, well, crying out loud again. Look at verse 14. At this, they wept aloud again. Women. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. This whole situation is breaking their hearts. Naomi at heart doesn't want them to leave, and they don't want to leave either. But then the sensibleness of what Naomi is saying begins to resonate with Orpah, and after one more kiss on the cheek, she turns and leaves 
for her home in Moab. But what about Ruth? Well, Naomi begins to hope that Ruth's mind will grasp how sensible Naomi and Orpah are being about this whole situation. So Naomi jumps at the opportunity. Look at verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Naomi has spoken to Ruth's mind, but she hasn't accounted for Ruth's heart. It makes sense to head home, but Ruth's heart won't allow her to do it. And as we look into Ruth's heart, I want to remind you that Naomi has just said the words that are up there on the screen. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her because that's going to be the driver for Ruth's response. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, before I say anything else, I can tell you that I believe that, that this is a, an incredibly romantic passage when it's read at a wedding and applied to the commitment of marriage. And I have no, people, no problem with people doing that at their wedding as long as that doesn't prevent them from getting the point of what Ruth is saying here. Because this is not really a romantic passage. It's a rhotic passage. Do you know what rhotic is? Well, rhotic is romantic without the man. <laughs> I've been in a lot of romantic situations and there's never been a man involved. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say here and, 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 and what I can say uh, here is that, is that it's okay if people say this to each other at a wedding. And in fact, you know, probably every married couple, every married couple should say that thing that we just saw up there to each other at least every month they're married as a reminder that God wants them to stay married. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. But, it's, but at its heart, there is no man in this passage. This is a daughter-in-law speaking to her mother-in-law, and at its heart, this is a statement of faith. Faith in Yahweh, the one true God. Orpah has just gone back to her people and her gods, and Ruth is clearly saying here that she will turn her back on her people, the Moabites, and her gods, Chemosh. And instead, she would become part of Naomi's people, the Israelites, and worship Naomi's God, Yahweh. Naomi had held on to him all these years, even as he held on to her. And Ruth is making that commitment for how long? Till a week from next Thursday? For the rest of her life. And all of this is in the context of Naomi just having told Ruth that Yahweh, this God that she wants to pursue, that Yahweh had turned his hand against her and brought her to a place of bitterness. And knowing that Yahweh can turn his hand against a person and cause bitterness, bitterness Ruth says, may Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. In other words, may Yahweh turn his hand against me if I turn my back on you on your people, 
or on your God for the rest of my life. Orpah made a decision driven by her God, Chemosh, and now Ruth has made a decision driven by what has been, up until now, Naomi's God, Yahweh. And what was her decision? Ruth has decided, I love this, that Yahweh will become her God. And what was the result of this statement of faith? That's what it is. She's, She's proclaiming that I will believe in Yahweh for the rest of my life. Well, look at verse 18. When Naomi realized, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her to leave. Ruth is choosing, listen, Ruth is choosing bitterness at the hands of the one true God over imagined control and comfort that comes from the gods of this world. So Orpah heads home. And Ruth continues on in this very difficult, perhaps 10-day journey to Israel. And this is where we need to point out that this is not just a journey to Israel. It is a journey to Bethlehem. They're going to Bethlehem. And once again, that name should have us wondering about the connection these two women, and Ruth in particular, might have to a much larger plan of God as they take steps that take them ever closer to the little town of Bethlehem. When they finally arrive there in Bethlehem, no one recognizes Ruth because they haven't met her. But the women of the town recognize, or at least think that they recognize, Naomi. But Naomi's been gone for more than 10 years, and they were 10 horrendous years that have taken their toll on this woman who was so young and pleasant and vibrant when she and her family moved away to Moab more than 10 years before. And clearly, Naomi hasn't kept up with her social media posts, so the women of Bethlehem haven't kept up with all that's happened to their old friend. Shame on her. Look at verse 19. So the women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? The women of Bethlehem are wondering out loud whether this can be Naomi. And in order to understand Naomi's response, there are a couple of things that we need to know. We need to do a little background check on this verse. One is that Bible names are often very full of meaning. And this passage is no exception. For example, the name Naomi means pleasant. And the name Mara means bitter. And that makes Naomi's response to the question, can this be Naomi, both sad and clever, but mostly sad. We say that because Naomi left Bethlehem with a a husband and two sons. And during the time when she was in Moab, her husband and both of her sons had died. The way Naomi looks at it, she had gone away full. But now Yahweh, who had prompted her to return to Bethlehem, had brought her back empty. Yahweh, of course, is one of the names of God. And Naomi rightly recognizes that it was Yahweh who had afflicted her and who had then brought her back to Bethlehem empty-handed. But then Naomi uses another name of God when she talks about her misfortune over the last more than 10 years. She calls God Shaddai. We often sing the song, El Shaddai, El Shaddai. And here's where we need to understand that El means God. And Shaddai means Almighty. So the two things put together when you sing that song, El Shaddai, 
You mean Almighty God. That's what you're calling him. Shaddai by, him, by itself without the L simply means the Almighty. Ooh, I like that. In other words, Naomi's still talking about Almighty God, but her use of the term the Almighty helps us to understand that she's emphasizing God's power when she's talking about this disaster that's come into her life. So, so you're tracking. Naomi means pleasant, and Mara means bitter. The Lord in this passage is Yahweh, and the Almighty is Shaddai. And all of that helps us to understand that the Moabites had many gods, but Israel had one God that went by many names. So with those distinctions in mind, look with me at verses 20 and 21 as Naomi answers the question as to whether this could actually be Naomi. Look at what it says. Don't call me pleasant, she told them. Call me bitter. Because Shaddai has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Yahweh has afflicted me, and Shaddai has brought misfortune on me. I'm no longer pleasant. I'm no longer the woman that I used to be. I am a bitter woman because of all that's going on. And I I just want to say, I know that she's been through a terrible tragedy. But the only reason that she's remaining bitter is that she hasn't caught on yet to what God is doing. She hasn't really understood that she's come home full, more full than when she went to Moab in the first place in light of the eternal plan of God. So Naomi's in a place where she can only see emptiness and affliction and she can only feel the bitterness that usually goes along with those two things. But we'd be remiss if we stopped here without looking at the last verse in this passage. Naomi is feeling the bitterness of emptiness and affliction, but things are about to take a seriously upward turn for Naomi and Ruth. And truthfully, Naomi still doesn't know the half of what God has planned for her or for Ruth's life. God's about to do something to and for these two two women that will be so awesome that I can promise you as the story continues that all of the suffering will fade away. All the bitterness will fade. And the suffering and bitterness will be replaced by pure joy as Naomi, oh, hear this, as Naomi begins to understand what Shaddai was up to during that entire time that she was in Moab. And I can tell you now that all of the goodness that's about to come into the lives of Ruth and Naomi It's going to happen because they are in the right place at the right time. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem at as the barley harvest was beginning. Arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. The right place? Well, I can tell you, based on the rest of the story, that Bethlehem is the right place. And the right time? Well, I can tell you, based on the rest of the story, that the beginning of barley harvest is the right time. And why is Bethlehem the right place? Why is the barley har- beginning of barley harvest the right time? Well, I can tell you, based on the rest of the story, that you're just going to have to come back next week because we've almost run out of time. I mean, we've almost run out of time for this week. But in the meantime, I can tell you this. Naomi and Ruth being in Bethlehem, the right place, 
at the beginning of harvest, the right time, will be what opens the door to everything that God is about to do. Not only in his plans for Ruth and Naomi, but in his plan for the ages. And just so you're ready for this, I'll say that Bethlehem and barley harvest are going to be, listen, every bit as significant to the eternal plan of God as the feet of the priest touching the waters of the Jordan River. There will be no gap between those two things in terms of their importance. And again, all of that's going to happen because Naomi and Ruth are in the right place at the right time. And all that makes me want to ask, how focused are you on being in the right place at the right time when it comes to God's plan for your life? You see, God often seeks to move us to the right place at the right time just so we'll have the opportunity to speak on his behalf or serve him in some significant way there in that right place and at the right time. And I know for a fact that, that sometimes, maybe even often, I miss out on what God has planned for me because being in the right place at the right time is not always as important to me as it should be. And I suspect that maybe that happens to you too. And that's why I've asked how focused you are on being in the right place at the right time when it comes to God's plan for your life. And that question makes me want to ask one more. How open are you to the idea that God may use the story of Ruth to change the way you look at being in the right place at the right time? And with those questions in place, as you ponder the answer to those questions, there are two more things that I want to read to you before we're done and before we call it a day. One, of course, is the passage that we've just unpacked, and I'll get to that in a minute. But before I do that, I want to read you a poem by Robert Frost, who, you, who was the poet laureate of the United States. It's a poem that you'll surely recognize. This is not going to be news to you. And as I read it, I hope you'll find it significant when it comes to the idea of being in the right place at the right time and especially the last few words of this poem. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry that I could not travel both and be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. In closing, let me read the passage to you for this morning one more time. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God 
will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on together until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she said to them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father and our God, thank you for this truth this morning. Thank you for the sweetness of, of watching Ruth learn these things that she's learned. Thank you for the testimony of Naomi over the years that prompted Ruth to want to be part of Naomi's people, to be a worshiper of, of the God of Naomi. Thank you for the way she interacted with her daughter-in-law and the passion her daughter-in-law has now shown. Thank you, Father, that before the beginning of time, you planned this trip back from Moab for Ruth and Naomi because of something more significant, <laughs> because of the most significant thing that you were about to do. Thank you for the reminder of your power and your faithfulness. Thank you for the... The attitude that Naomi has for right now, bitter and empty. And thank you for the way that's going to turn around beginning next week in the next part of the story of Ruth. Teach us. Teach us, God, to focus on your eternal plan and to focus on being in the right place in the, at the right time rather than focusing on all the tragedies in our lives that, that leave us feel empty and hurt. God, thank you for your goodness, and thank you for this day. Thank you especially for the privilege we have, Father, of mentioning the name of Jesus to you whenever we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we're headed out, and uh, this would be a good week to start thinking about the right place at the right time. I don't know why I keep saying that, but I think this would be a good week. Am I in the right place at the right time? When you get up tomorrow morning or when you go home this afternoon, Wonder if you're in the right place at the right time. And I, I just want you to know that uh, Sunday afternoon I have a tradition, and a lot of you would call it a Sunday afternoon nap. It's not. It's a Sunday afternoon coma. And I, I'm just going to fall into that chair and pretend to watch football while I make utterances that, you know, I don't know. I just, it's the way it's going to go. It's the right place at the right time. So we're not saying you can't take a nap. But be aware of opportunities that come along. And when you get the urge to move, move. Because that may just be the Spirit of God doing something in your life akin to what he did to Naomi and sending her out. And with that, we've huddled up. We've discussed the play for this next week and all that's left for... Get ready. All that's left for me to say is... Ready? Pray. Go get him, Potter's house. <laughs>